And if we're going to be saved, we're going to be saved as individuals. And Peter said in the second chapter of Acts, he said, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And he's not talking about those out there in the world. He's talking about you have to save yourself from those even in the church. Because a lot of things that are going on in the church, scripture talks about these certain men crept in unawares. There is a lack of spiritual leadership. There's not very much of God's word being preached and taught. Focus is not on the Lord. It's on other things other than the Lord, of which he did tell us that these things would happen in the third chapter of Revelation. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou were cold or hot, because thou art lukewarm, I'll spew thee out of, thy, out of my mouth, because thou sayest, thou art rich and increased with good. So a lot of these things that are going on today that we see, the Bible prophesied that it would happen. And it's not something we can stop, cannot stop the conditions of our time, because if we could do that, then we could stop the scriptures. And of course, you know, we can't stop the scriptures. Can we say amen? The scriptures were written based upon the foreknowledge of God. The scriptures are written based upon what God has already seen in his foreknowledge as what, what happened. And those things are happening in our time. And so we are encouraged then to do what is necessary to save ourselves at all costs. Work out our own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. And if we do that, it would be God working in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so the message today is repentance, to have a heart that is contrite before God, a heart that is tender before God, a heart that constantly is searching itself to make sure that we are in line with the word of God, a mindset of taking self-examination on a consistent basis. Remember he said, let a man examine who? Himself. To look into God's word and to evaluate where we stand with him. Because it is the word of God that lets us know where we stand with him. And uh, not looking at ourselves through our own eyes, not evaluating ourselves based upon our own feelings, but letting God be our judge now so that in the end, he won't have to be our judge at the end. See, if we let the word of God judge us now, and we judge ourselves, then when the end comes, um, we go back with him. Because remember, all sin has to be judged. And if we judge ourselves now, then uh, we can expect to go back with the Lord when he comes. And so we are dealing with repentance. Now, of course, there's a lot of things that are going on in churches today. One of the main things is talking about praying through uh, trying to pray through, trying to get a breakthrough and all these types of things. You can't get a breakthrough by praying, but you can get a breakthrough by repentance. And a lot of times it's because people are in sin and they're trying to do other things to free themselves other than the thing that they need to do. And that is repentance. It's one thing about repentance. Repentance will always get God's attention. Repentance will always motivate and move God to turn from his wrath and from his judgment and uh, save us. Repentance has been the key to every dispensation that is in the scripture. 
Now, every dispensation, and there are seven of them, ends in judgment. Everyone, every, the dis, every dispensation has ended in judgment. And repentance has been the key to salvation in every dispensation. Now, of course, we said there are seven of them. There's innocence, uh, conscience, law and prophets, grace, tribulation, new earth, and peace. And, of course, each dispensation, with the exception of peace, uh, ends in judgment. And in each dispensation, with the exception of peace, requires repentance for salvation. Now, let's take the first dispensation, which was innocence. We don't know how long a period that time was, but the dispensation of innocence is a period of which man was innocent before God. When God made Adam and Eve, they were perfect. They were without sin. They were holy. Um, they were pure. They were upright. He says in the book of Ecclesiastes, God hath made man upright. Now, of course, there are those that say that there's no such thing as a perfect God. And, of course, um, the philosophy of that is that how can a perfect God create an imperfect world? The fact that the world and man is imperfect is an indication that God is imperfect. Because look at man. Well, God didn't make man in the condition that he is in now. The scripture says he made man upright. And so this is the kind of things you get off into when people get philosophical when it comes to the Bible. Philosophy has no place when it comes to the scripture. You say amen. And of course, I need to teach a Bible class when philosophy actually began. Philosophy began in the Garden of Eden. What is philosophy? Reasoning. And when did it begin? Well, it began with a woman, the first woman that was ever created. What was her name? Eve. In the Garden of Eden, reason was birthed. And of course, we don't have time to deal with that, but maybe that would be a good Bible class to deal with the beginning of philosophy and show just how philosophy is and reasoning is opposed to God. Um, but anyway, um, they... The Bible says God made man upright. When he made him, he was perfect. But when he made him, he made him with free choice. And we know the decisions that they made. So they were innocent, pure, holy, without any sin, until the woman listened to the voice of the devil and was deceived. And she uh, disobeyed God's commandment to eat of the fruit of the tree. She gave to her husband. The Bible says in 8 chapter Romans that Adam made a conscious decision to do contrary to what God had commanded. He was not tricked. He was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. And when he disobeyed God, that's what brought the entire human race into sin. And so that period ended with the judgment of God. What was the judgment of God? Well, man now has got to die. Number two, the curse of the earth was implemented. The curse of hostility between man and beast. Um, all of this came about, the judgment was death. So that dispensation of innocence ended with the sentence of death. And death has been passed upon all of us almost 
for the past nearly 6,000 years since Adam walked the face of the earth. Then he entered into the dispensation of conscience where there was no written word of God and man had to walk with God based upon his conscience. He walked with God based upon what was revealed to him, that which was right. And this is the period where began when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden all the way up to the flood in Noah's day. That dispensation ended with the flood when God opened the fountains of the great deep, your Bible says, and opened the windows of heaven. And it rained for how long? 40 days and what? 40 nights. Water came up from the earth and rose up from the earth. Water came down from the heavens and completely submerged or baptized the earth. And that ended the dispensation of, well, that was the dispensation of conscience. However, that dispensation, conscience continued um, until Moses got the law of God from Mount Sinai, which began the dispensation of the law and the prophets, which period was for 1500 years until Jesus hung on the cross. So in each dispensation, there was judgment. Dispensation of conscience, there was the flood. Dispensation of the law and the prophets, the death of Jesus. Now we're in the fourth dispensation, which is the gospel age, the church age, where the gospel is preached, where except a man be born of the water and spirit, he cannot enter where? To the kingdom of God. And this dispensation will end in the middle of the tribulation period, when the sixth seal is open, according to the fifth chapter of Revelation, and the sun will turn black and the moon will turn to blood, and that will begin the great day of God's wrath. But before that time, you have the rapture that will take place, that will take God's people out of the earth before the wrath and judgments of God come. Now we're seeing a foreshadow of these things right now. The things that are going on in the earth are a foreshadow of the wrath and the judgment of God that will come in the tribulation period. Earthquakes, starvation, violence, um, hostility between the nations, wars, conflict. All these things will come to a climax in the tribulation period, but we are experiencing them to some degree right now. Famine that is going on. So we are in the dispensation of the church age, which will, uh, the rapture will take the church out of the earth, but the period will not end to the middle of the tribulation period. And then of course you have the seven year tribulation period that will end with the battle of Armageddon. when God will come and destroy the governments of man and set up his own government according to your Bible. And so, uh, but repentance is the key in each one. Repentance in Adam's day, for Adam repented, after he had committed sin and God covered his sin, uh, dispensation of conscience, Noah and his family were the only ones saved. The rest of the world did not repent, so they were lost, but they could have been saved if they had repented and obeyed the preaching of Noah and got in the ark. Can you say amen? Then you have the dispensation of the law and the prophets. That dispensation ended when Jesus died on the cross and everyone that repented and had confidence in him could be saved. And of course, repentance today 
uh, to, re to repent and hear and believe the gospel and get baptized in Jesus' name for the Holy Ghost, then you have in the dispensation of the tribulation period, there has to be a repentance there. There have to be individuals that are willing not to take the mark. And if you don't take the mark, you can't buy or sell and you'll be executed. So in every period, it required repentance. Repentance was a key to salvation. And so repentance is something that you don't hear preachers talk about today because many of them need to repent. You don't hear it preached because it's not the popular message that's going to cause people to shout. It's not a message that is going to pack out the church. But one thing about it, it will get you in the rapture if you do it. Can we say amen? All right, so let us go to, um, let's see here, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. There are seven fruits of repentance. A lot of times people think that they can leave the church and backslide, and then they want to get back right with God, and they come back to church, come down to the altar, fall out and cry, and speak in tongues, and everything is fine. Oh, no. You have to understand that out of all of God's gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues is the least gift. It is the least, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We put so much emphasis on speaking in tongues that we overemphasize it. Speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And that's all. That's all. It is the evidence, it is the outward sign that we receive that a person has been filled with the Spirit of God. Does not mean that after you have that experience that you're holy. Because there's a whole lot of people that are backslidden and desperately wicked that can still speak in tongues. See, we place too much emphasis. We place the wrong emphasis on speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a gift. Now, when we talk about speaking in tongues, we're talking about after one has received the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We're talking about the gift of tongues after a person is saved. You see, the gift of tongues and the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking other tongues is two different things. Because when you talk about the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues, that word gift means doron, which is the sacrificial life of Christ. That when a person has received the gift of the Holy Ghost, they have received the life of Christ in their heart. What is that? His spirit. He has now come down inside of them. Then there is the gift of tongues, spoken of in 1 Corinthians 14, which comes from the Greek word charisma, which has to do with spiritual endowments, miraculous faculties, or enablements that one attains because they have the Holy Spirit. So I'll put it to you like this. Everybody that has the gift of tongues have received the sign of tongues that is being baptized with the Holy Ghost. But not everybody that has received the sign of tongues, which is the gift of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, has the gift of tongues. Because the gift of tongues is that ability to speak in tongues at any time, anywhere. You don't even have to feel the anointing. You don't have to feel the presence of God. You just have that gift. 
Just like a person that can sing, they don't have to have the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to be able to sing. It's an ability and it's a skill. They can do it anytime. And so many people that come into the church and they get saved, some backslide, they still may have that gift. They can speak at any time. I've seen people drunk speak in tongues. And you know that's not the Holy Ghost, right? I've seen people demon-possessed speaking in tongues. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, <clears throat> he says, if I pray in tongues, my spirit prayeth. Not the Holy Ghost, my spirit is praying. But my understanding is unfruitful. And then he said, I'd rather speak five words in a language that I can understand than 10,000 tongues that I cannot understand. So speaking in tongues for the saint of God is designed for their edification to build them up. It does not mean that they're holy. Can we say amen? Now, you might not have heard this before, but this is in your Bible. You know if I'm going to make a statement, I got some scripture to back it up. Can we say amen? Because I don't have time to get up here and talk about my feelings and, and what I believe and my opinions. That's just a bunch of garbage. That's wasting everybody's time. So understand, brothers and sisters, so when an individual falls and goes back out into the world and come back, I'm not looking to see if they're going to speak in tongues. I'm looking for the seven fruits of repentance that the scripture gives us to let us know that God, in fact, has, if you want to use this term, reclaimed them, which is not a biblical term. Reclaim. I've never understood the word reclaim. Reclaim from what? Once a child of God is always a child of God. Just because you backslide don't mean you stop becoming a child of God. Is that right? If your child went to prison, are they still your child? Well, yeah, they're still your child. It don't mean you're going to go visit them, huh? Are you going to send them any money, huh? Yeah, that's my son. He locked up. But he's still your son, right? So I never understood the reclaim thing. It's not biblical. The word is restored. And so... And in order for a person to be restored, they have to repent. So all this praying through, all this breakthrough stuff, you can sidetrack all of that if you just repent and stop committing sins. Can we say amen? Does that make it plain enough? Not you. But if you're doing it, it is you. All right. Now let's look at a situation here. First Corinthians chapter five, verse number one through seven. Now we're going to read about an incident here since we're dealing with repentance. All right. First Corinthians chapter five, verse number one. Let's read. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Okay. Now there is a young man here that has slept with his father's wife, not his mother, but his stepmother. If it was his mother, the Bible would say his mother, but they had multiple wives back then in those days. And of course, he committed fornication with his father's wife. Now I want you to know, it says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication, such fornication. 
Oftentimes, if you go to a dictionary and look up the word fornication, it will give you the definition on definition, sexual relations between unmarried persons. Well, that's just one branch of it. Because he lets you know here, such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. This brand of fornication, they did not have a name for it, even among the unsaved. But we have a name for it now, it's called incest. Now the word fornication comes from the Greek word porneo, which is where you get the word pornography from, which means every unlawful sexual indulgence. Fornication and all of its branches. It covers premarital relations, extramarital relations, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, all of these things in your Bible are considered fornication. You follow? Can we say amen? And the very fact that he mentions and such fornication, the word such lets you know that there's various kinds of fornication. And I want you to know that God hates fornication. He hates fornication. All right? That one should have his father's wife. Now, this is the apostle Paul. He's the pastor of this church. And he says, been reported to me that there's a young man that's guilty of fornication in the church. The type of fornication that the Gentiles don't even have a word for. Well, let's read verse 2. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that had done this deed might be taken away, what? Among you. He tells them that they're puffed up. What were they puffed up about? Well, they were, instead of dealing with the case, instead of bringing the individual in, the church court, and putting him out of the church because he would not stop doing these things. All they did was talked about him. All they did was ran him down. Nobody judged him. Now we have a problem today with fornication. I'm hearing all the time of preachers falling into fornication. It's sickening. I hear all the time preachers in various different levels guilty of fornication. And judgment is not being executed upon them. Today, a preacher can have a scandal on them that they're gay or commit fornication or mess with kids, whatever, and they're still up in the pulpit. Still on television, still on the radio. That's why I don't associate with just any preacher. I don't associate, associate with preachers that are involved in fornication because it's something that God hates. And if he hates it, I hate it. Can we say amen? And of course, a lot of those people are afraid of me because they don't know what I'm going to say publicly about it. I'm not going to call their names because I don't want to get sued. Of course, I've been sued a couple times. Won both times. A uh, third person was going to sue. He went blind. Well, one person sued me. He went blind. The other one uh, sued me. He went to prison. And the other one talked about sued me and he wound up in the hospital with blood clots in his lungs. He said, tell Bishop Johnson, I'm sorry. <laughs> so we're not afraid of anybody being sued, but we at the same time don't want to violate people's rights. Can we say amen? So um, the church was in sin. You see, saints can be in sin. A group of people can be in sin. A pastor can be in sin. A whole church 
can be in sin. There are whole churches that are in sin. This whole church, the Corinthian church, was in sin. And as you see, you'll see as we go along. He says you should have mourned. You should have felt bad about the fact that this brother had did this thing. Instead of work, walking with God, out committing fornication. Instead, all you did was talk about him and just talk about how bad and how filthy he was. Well, instead of dealing with him, instead of taking him away from among you. Let's read verse 3. For I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged what? Oh, some people say you ain't supposed to judge, huh? People that like to walk around and say you're not supposed to judge are people that don't want to be corrected themselves. That's all that is. You know, there is judgment. The Bible says judgment begins where? At the house of God. You're supposed to judge. Go down there and tell the, the judge down in the courtroom you ain't supposed to judge. Ran down, drove down the street 100 miles an hour, 25 mile per hour zone, and then you got locked up, and you go to court, and you tell the judge, you can't judge me, God's going to judge me. What is he going to do? He's going to give you the harshest sentence he can possibly give you. Well, he says, verily, I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit have judged already, let's read, as though I were present concerning him that has so what? done this deed. Verse 4 In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of who? What is he saying? Put him out of the church. And as you put him out of the church, you are delivering him to Satan. Remember, Jesus said on one occasion in the 18th chapter of Matthew, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth, thou shalt what? Bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth, shall what? So you think you can go out there and bind something on earth and God's going to bind it in heaven? That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about in the church court. If you have an individual that comes into the church court, and the church court is representative of the pastor and the deacons, to judge the situation of unruly saints. If they don't repent and stop doing what they're doing, then you can, the church court binds them on the earth by putting them out the church and God will bind them in heaven. That's what that scripture is. Don't think about that song. Who sung that song if you bind on the earth? Was that Shirley Caesar? Whoever it was, they don't know what they're talking about. That's not the Bible. That's talking about the pastor and those are in the church that have authority to judge, to keep the church clean, whatever we pray in that church court, if we bind them in the church, God will bind them in heaven. If they repent and come back to the church court, repent, manifest fruit of repentance, we pray and loose them in the church and God will loose them in heaven. That's what that scripture is dealing with in Matthew 18. See, we listen to a lot of too many singers that don't read their Bible, half of them don't even go to church. Y'all might be quiet on me tonight, huh? Do I seem kind of mean tonight? No. <laughs> All right. All right. So, if you have a saint in the church that will not repent, that causes damage to the church, and they will not stop, will not change, you bring them into the church court, you try to reach them, try to talk to them about doing right. If they don't want to do right, 
We pray the prayer, Lord, we bind them in this church. God will bind them in heaven and we turn them over to Satan. Now he says to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of what? The flesh. That doesn't mean to kill them, but to kill that attitude, that behavior, that disposition that is in their flesh to get them to turn around and repent. That's why he says that the spirit may be saved in the day of who? The Lord Jesus. That in hopes they repent. And in the day of the Lord Jesus, the time of the rapture, they would have gotten themselves straightened out. And now they can be caught up and go back with him in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. This is what he's saying they should have done. But all they did was sat around and talked about him. They did not execute any kind of judgment. See, I, heard, I remember Bishop Golder saying on a tape one time, he said, the hardest job of any pastor is to keep the church clean. He said, I didn't have too much of trouble when I had six members. He said, but it became very difficult when I got 600 members trying to keep the church clean. You're not supposed to let mess go on in the church. Can we say amen? That's what the church court is all about. All right. So, um, and there's other scriptures we need to read, but we don't have time to read them. So he says he should be delivered unto Satan. You need to put him out, turn him over to the devil so that God can use the devil to beat on him and hopefully he'll come to himself and repent. And then once he comes to himself and repent, then you can bring him back in church again. You pray and have, uh, loose him in the church. God said, I will loose him in heaven. Let's read verse six. Your glorying is not good. What was that glorying? Instead of dealing with the situation, all they were doing was talking about him and running him down. Your glorying is not good. Let's read. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the what? The whole lump. What was the whole lump? The entire church. What was the little leaven? Their talk and gossip and sinning with their mouths. That was the little leaven. Leaven in the scripture is something that's looked upon as evil, bad, sinful. So their little talk contaminated the whole church because they were not doing what God told them to do. All right, let's read verse seven. Purge out therefore the old leaven. What is that? Stop gossiping. Stop running him down. Stop running him down and glorifying yourself. Oh, I never would have done anything like that. Making yourself look good in the light of downing the brother that fell in sin. He said, purge therefore the old leaven. Stop all that gossiping and talk. Get rid of it. Cleanse yourselves from it. Why? Let's read. That ye may be a what? New lump as ye are what? Unleavened for even Christ our Passover is what? Sacrifice for us. Now why did he mention Christ our Passover sacrifice for us? What he is saying is that that same blood that was offered for your sins when you receive salvation that washed your sins away, that same blood that was offered in Passover can cleanse you from the sin that you have been committing if you just simply repent. That's why he mentions that there. Now, they met with the young man. They put him out. The church repented. And so he writes this epistle to them a year later. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
We're jumping a year ahead now. And he got a report. And this is what he's writing concerning that. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 through 11. All right. Here we are approximately one year later. All right. Let's read verse number eight. For though I made you sorry with a letter. What letter was that? The letter we just read, 1 Corinthians, right? That's the letter he's talking about. For though I made you sorry with a letter. Let's read. I do not repent. I'm not sorry that I did that. Let's read. Though I did repent. In other words, I was sorry I had to do it. Let's read. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a what? Season. One year. So in other words, he says, I, though I made you sorry with a letter, I'm not sorry I made you sorry. I wish I didn't have to do it. But that same epistle made you sorry, though it was only for a season. Verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrow to what? Repentance. You sorrow to repentance. And remember, repentance means to stop and go in the opposite direction. It's to stop going in the direction away from God, turn around and go into God's direction. That's a descriptive picture of repentance. It means to change from the way that you were. He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye did what? Sorrow to repentance. There's a lot of people that say they're sorry, but they don't change. Repentance is sorrow that inspires change, that produces change in an individual. All right? But that you sorrow to repentance, let's read. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us, what? In nothing. All right. They were made sorry after a godly manner. The kind of sorrow that they were made after a godly manner motivated them to change from being in sin, getting out of sin and getting right with God. That's repentance. Let's read on. Verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance. That word worketh means produces repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world, what? So we have two kinds of sorrow then. There's the godly sorrow, and then there's the sorrow of the world. I remember I was talking to an inmate um, in Five Block. Five Block was called Blue Hole Card. It was a protection block. It was more stabbings and murders in the protection block than it was anyplace else. But there was a guy that had been locked up since the days of Tricky Dicky. Do you know who that was? Y'all don't know who that is, do you? Richard Nixon. And this was in the 19, when was this? This was in the 1990s. He'd been locked up since 1960, well, he committed his crime in 1969. This was in the 90s. And I asked him, was he sorry? Because he's done all this time in prison. And he says, I'm sorry I got caught. 
but I'm not sorry for what I did. That's how a lot of people are. Many times they're sorry that they got caught, but they don't, they're not sorry to the extent that they wish they had not done it and it inspires and motivates and brings about a change. That's the type of sorrow of the world. They're sorry that they got caught. They're sorry that they have to suffer the consequences, but they don't change. But godly sorrow produces salvation because the individual repents, they have remorse, they have guilt, they have compunction, they have conviction, and they change and go into the direction of God. That's what they did after his letter. And this is what he's saying. Verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. The reason why the sorrow of the world worketh death is because the individual will not stop doing the things that's going to bring them death. And what is that? Sin. But the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. All right. Let's read verse 11. For behold, the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Now we're going to read seven things that he's going to say that you that repented demonstrated through your conduct and your character that show that you had godly sorrow and that God has accepted you back. See, God would only accept if we repent. I can't just tell God I'm sorry and continue to do the things I'm not supposed to do. Can we say amen? No more you will. Um, accept the person if they continue to do the things that they're not supposed to do and turn around and keep telling you that they're sorry. Is that right? Well, he says, behold, for behold the selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Number one, let's read. What carefulness it wrought in you. If a person is truly repentant, it will produce carefulness in them. They will make sure that they do not do those same things again, get themselves in that situation ever again. They will be careful. So if a person comes in and wants to be restored, that's backslidden, one of the things that we look in them to see if they are truly repentant is that if they are, have an attitude, that they're going to be careful not to get themselves in the same trap that they were in before. Can we say amen? That's the first fruit. What carefulness it wrought in you? Let's read. Yea, what? Clearing of yourselves, that's the second one. You're going to do what is necessary to get yourself cleared in the sight of God, to get yourself straight. If I have to confess to the pastor to tell him what I did was wrong so that I can get prayer, is that, if that's what's going to clear me to God, then that's what I'm going to do. If I stole something from my brother, if, I, if what's going to get me cleared in the sight of God, I have to give it back. I will do whatever it takes to get myself cleared of the wrong that I've did. Get it straightened out. You don't go on and try to pray through. Can we say amen? <laughs> Is that right? Clearing of yourselves. Let's read. Yea, what? Indignation. Yea, what? Indignation. You're not angry at anybody 
but yourself or getting yourself in this spiritual condition. Some people leave the church and backslide. They blame the church. Well, I would come back, but everybody's going to be looking at me. You ain't repented, are you? They haven't repented. Well, I would come back, but so-and-so is still there and I don't want people. You know what that tells me? You're not repentant. Because it says, yea, what indignation. You're not blaming the church. You're not blaming anybody. How about these people that claim church hurt, right? And then they leave the church. That's not God's way, is it? No. No. Yea, what indignation. I am indignant. I am angry at myself. Not blaming anybody else. It's me. I'm blaming myself. I'm angry at myself to have gotten myself in the position in the first place that got me put out or got me in trouble with God. Indignation. What's the next one? Yea, what? Fear. I have a greater fear of God now than I ever had before. A greater fear. Yea, what vehement, what? Desire. I have a burning desire now to do the things that are right in the sight of God. That's what that is. Yea, what vehement desire. See, a person don't backslide and they come back and get restored and then you don't see them for the next three months. Can we say amen? <laughs> no. You know what that tells me based on the scriptures? They're not repentant. Yea, what zeal. Then the last one is what? Yea, what revenge. What is that? I'm going to get back at myself for allowing me to fall in the condition that I fell in that got me in trouble in the first place. Not revenge against the folk that might have turned me in or revenge against the, the church that judged me or the pastor that sat me down or the deacons that put me out. No, I'm not getting revenge against them. I'm getting back at myself. I'm getting back at my flesh. If I got to put my flesh on a fast, I'm going to make it fast. I'm going to get back at myself. These are the things that we look for when a person is getting reclaimed, <laughs> restored. All right, let's read. In all things you have approved yourselves to be what? Clear in this manner. Why? What was the signs that they were cleared in the sight of God? They had carefulness, they cleared themselves, they have indignation, they have a greater fear, greater vehement desire, greater zeal, revenge. These are the seven fruits of repentance that we look for when an individual is coming back to God. These are demonstrations of repentance. And I didn't read anywhere where it says speak in tongues, did you? No. Not at all. All right. Second Timothy chapter two. Repentance, saints, repentance. Second Timothy chapter two. That's how a backslider gets restored. Not coming down, falling down on the altar and crying and holding everybody up. <laughs> no. If you want to do that, fine. But manifest these fruits. That's what I'm looking for. I'm ready to get back in the church. No, no, no. You have to. Now, sometimes those fruits can be manifested right away. Sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it takes months. This young man, it only took a year. 
that he was back right with God. The whole church was back right with God. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 24 through 26. All right, I think we might finish this tonight. Let's read. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. This servant of the Lord he's talking about is the New Testament pastor. See, the book of Timothy is a pastoral epistle. Timothy was a bishop over the churches of Ephesus. Timothy and Titus. Titus was a bishop over the churches of Crete. And these are pastoral epistles. And so he has given Timothy instructions. And these instructions that he's given Timothy as an apostle and Timothy a bishop, he is to take these things and give it down to his pastors in his diocese. And the pastors in his diocese is to teach the pastors. Or he's to give them to the pastors in their diocese. And the pastors that are under Bishop Timothy is to give them to the members of their churches. That's how it works. All right. So he says, and the servant of the Lord must not what? Strive, but be what? Gentle unto all men, what? Apt to teach. What's that last one? Say it again. Say it one more time for me. <laughs> Patient. That's what we have to be as pastors. Now, you know, if we have to be patient, you know you have to be patient, right? The commercial that Will Smith's son did. I don't know what his name is. Some crazy looking kids, aren't they? <laughs> crazy family. He did a commercial. Patience is not a virtue. Did you see that? I said to myself, no wonder your whole family is all messed up. Jesus said, your patience possess ye your what? Souls. How do you get patience? Y'all don't even want to say it, do you? I have a lot of patience. Now, I still got a ways to go. Uh, but I do have some patience because I've been through some things. Tribulation produces what? Patience. All right. So this is what the men of God, women of God have to be in leadership positions. Patience. All right. Verse 25, something else we have to be. Let's read. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. So you get those in the church that get into trouble or cause trouble. And then the servant of the Lord, the pastor, has to deal with them. We're not supposed to strive. We don't be arguing and hollering at them. We're supposed to be gentle. Have to teach, have the ability to teach, patience. And in meekness, instructing those that oppose who? Themselves. When the child of God gets in trouble in the church, you know who are they opposing? Who are they doing, who are they doing wrong? Themselves wrong. Because they are the ones that are going to be lost if they don't repent. They are the ones that are going to lose out with God if they don't change. So we, in meekness, instructing those that do what? Oppose themselves. What if they don't want to hear any instruction? Then we have to put them out. But deliver them to Satan. And then God has to work on them. He used the devil to work on them. So we put them out. And God sends the devil after them car blow up. You come to church. Pray for Brother Tylenol. His car blew up. So do you pray for him? 
Then he loses his job. Pray for Brother Tyler and all. He lost his job. Pray that the Lord will bless him with another job. Then his wife walks out on him. Oh, Brother Tylenol is really going through. Pray for his wife left him. Don't pray for his wife to come back. Don't pray for him to get another car. Don't pray for him to get another job. Pray that he repents. Because God is whooping on him. And the more you keep praying on him, the more God is going to what? That's why I pray for every backslider I can think of. Let God, you didn't miss that, did you? Well, I want to see him saved. All right. So all they're doing is opposing themselves. We're supposed to, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Why do we do it in meekness? Why are we patient? Why don't we strive? Why aren't we striving with them? Why are we doing it in meekness? Let's read. If God peradventure, that word peradventure means just in case or in the event, God will give them what? Repentance to the acknowledging what? The truth. So we do it in meekness. We do it in in, with patience. We try to instruct them just in case God gives them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. What is the truth that they would acknowledge? I'm wrong. I'm in sin. I'm not right. That's where we're trying to get to. Because the main job of the pastor when he teaches the word of God and preaches the word of God is to get the people to see themselves. That's what we try to do. And what's the best way for you to see yourself? Us to get the book and teach the word. Is that right? You ain't gonna see yourself by me up here talking about myself. You're gonna see yourself if I put the mirror up to you. Because when you stand in front of the mirror, you can see yourself, right? Okay, so... The Bible tells us that we do it like this. See, you don't let mess go on in the church. If one sister does another sister wrong, you got to bring him in and get that straightened out. Can we say amen? If a saint's borrowing money from folk and won't pay him back, you got to bring him in and deal with that. If the ministers is hollering and abusing the saints, you got to bring him in and what? Oh, he had a hard time when I first came here, huh? I ain't never been in a meeting. It's always the first time. Why I got to be in the meeting? Because the Bible says you got to do it. It's called conflict resolution. Did y'all know that? That's a corporate term. Any corporate workers in here? I work at McDonald's. <laughs> conflict resolution. Where do they get it from? Right out of the Bible. You don't let mess go on in church. Gossip. People sleeping around with each other supposed to keep the church clean, right? Why would you come to church and do some crazy stuff like that? You might as well stay out. Not you. You might as well just stay out in the world. Why do people want to come into the church and act a fool? I was talking to my brother on the phone and, and uh, he, was, he was on the phone and I heard this in the background. Oh! I said, what is that? Oh, that's just one of my wives. She's drunk. Oh, I said, what do you got going on? He said, man, this is a Pentecostal home. We saved. I said, you ain't nowhere near saved. Stop lying. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, she was an alcoholic and she hadn't had a drink in a whole year. 
And I said, honey, won't you take a little sip? I said, you got her back addicted again? Did you call yourself saved? I said, man, you're the devil. How are you going to talk to your little brother like that? I said, oh, y'all going to the lake if y'all don't repent. See, he had got to me because he talked about him being saved. I don't like that. He, he was raised up in church. He know better than that. We know folk know better than that, right? Don't it get on your nerves when folks start talking crazy? He's like, wait a minute, you used to be in the choir with me. What are you talking about? Now they're a black Hebrew Israelite. Go down there to, 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 uh, to, to the Gaza and fight them. Black Hebrew Israelite. Yeah, I'm talking to y'all out there if you're watching. You won't come talk to me talking all that stuff. You won't come talk to me. Come on, let's go through the book. Go down there and get in them tunnels. It's rough down there, isn't it? We need to thank God that we ain't in no tunnels, right? They say Israel is, is smoking them out of them tunnels. They're sending in all kind of smoke and things in them tunnels. Oh, they they getting them. It's terrible, isn't it? 60% of the people over there in Gaza are women and children. Isn't it terrible? I don't know why Israel keeps bombing and killing all those innocent people. And then, of course, you got over here in the United States. They protesting, right? You have some folk in this country that are Palestinians that justify that say ain't nothing wrong with killing children. Isn't that something? The Bible says, Jesus said on one occasion, the day will come where people will be committing murder and thinking they're doing God's service. Well, see, see, people do a lot of talk today. They don't back it up. Well, anyway, we instruct them to try to get them to acknowledge the truth, to see themselves that they're not right. Let's read verse 26. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him. What? What has happened to them? The devil has got control of them, right? And our job is to sit down with them and try to show them, listen, what you're doing is wrong. It's the devil. I remember I was in a deacon board meeting back in Michigan under Bishop Combs. And we had a, we had a deacon in there that was not doing very well. He was doing all kinds of stuff. And we were sitting down there trying to reach him. The pastor was trying to reach him. Every time the pastor called the scripture, he jumped to his feet. You're trying to kill me. Why are you trying to kill me? He said, brother, we're not trying to kill. We're just reading the scripture. Stop reading the scripture. Every time you do that, you're killing me. <laughs> An evil spirit they got a hold of. The devil is taking them captive. And it's our job to try to reach them, to get them to see themselves. Or to get them to do what? Repent. Can we say amen? To repent. All right. And uh, because the devil is taking them captive. Second uh, Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. And verse number nine. We know this scripture, but we're going to read it for the record. Second Peter chapter three. And verse number nine. All right. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. Let's read. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as what? Some men count slackness. Oh, no. If God's going to promise something, he's going to do it. Is that right? Let's read. 
but is long suffering to us where why has God not pounced on certain individuals for the things that they have done? Because he is what kind of suffering? Long suffering. And he's long suffering to us word. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should what? God wants to see everybody saved, but he knows it's not going to happen. But he's long suffering anyway. Somebody says, how long is long suffering? As long as can be. Long suffering. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All right, now let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're down to about our last two, three scriptures before we close. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, normally we would read verses 1 through 27, but we don't want to read all of that. We're just going to read some parts of it, and then we're going to skip over. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and verse number 1. All right. If we have it, let's read. All right, let's read. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Verse 2. Came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the house, king's house. From the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. So, of course, this is the story of David commits fornication, the greatest sin that David ever committed, the only blemish, the Bible says, on his record. But it was a sin that cost him for the rest of his life. All right? He finds out that she's pregnant. He calls for Uriah to come back from fighting the war. Try to get him to lay with his wife, but he wouldn't do it because he was so devoted to David. And so David tells Joab to put him in the front lines of the battle so he could be killed quickly. He got killed quickly. He got word back that Uriah the Hittite was dead. Allow Bathsheba to mourn 30 days. Let's jump over to verse 26 and 27. Let's read these last two verses here. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah's husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was passed, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done, this pleased the Lord. Now, I want you to see it like this. So, he committed fornication. Now, he wasn't supposed to be at home. He should have been out at war with the soldiers. See, when you're not where you're supposed to be, that's when you get in trouble. Is that right? So, um, committed fornication. 
got her pregnant, tried to cover it up, bearing false witness, killed her husband, and then took her to be his wife, lied as if the baby was his. Bore false witness, committed fornication, covered his neighbor's wife, committed murder. He broke four of the Ten Commandments, and one of them is punishable by death, and he violated four of them. Well, during this time, how long does it take for a woman to have a baby? Nine months. Well, let's say it was ten months, because a month for her to realize that she was pregnant. Well, he laid with her, and then, well, nine months, nine or ten months. That whole time, David was still praying as if he had done nothing wrong, still paying his vows as he's done nothing wrong, still offering sacrifices as if he wasn't even wrong. Maybe he was writing some psalms. All that time, he was in sin. He never saw himself for almost a year until the word of the Lord came to him by the prophet Nathan. You can't see yourself I cannot see myself outside of the word of God. It takes the word of God for me to see myself if I will listen and receive it so that I can see myself. Let's go to chapter 12, verse number one. Let's read. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David and he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him. And with his children, it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Let's read verse four. There came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was what? Come to him. Verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that had done this thing shall what? Surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had what? No pity. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, Now, you see how sin can blind an individual? Passing judgment on somebody else. And he was the one that the prophet was talking about. Let's read. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. And I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, verse 8. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Verse 9. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil, what? In his sight. What was that? His disobedience, despising the commandment of who? The Lord. That's how God looks at it. To do evil in his sight. Let's read. Thou hast killed Uriah, 
the Hittite with the sword and has taken his wife to be thy wife and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast displeased me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. When he said the sword shall not depart of thy house, what he is saying is that what he did to Uriah with the sword of Ammon, that God was going to punish him for the rest of his life. And from this point forward, David had nothing but trouble. And then we're going to read the 51st Psalm, which will be our last scripture, to see the repentance that was brought into his heart. But it could not come. He could not see himself until the word of God came. Is that right? All right. Let's read verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. Oh, yes, his son Adonijah stole the king's horse and rode around Jerusalem and said he was king. And Absalom tried to kill his own father and chased him out of the kingdom. And it took God to cut Absalom off out of his own house. All right. Evil can see out of thine own house. Let's read. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. Oh, yes. When he chased David out of his house when he got old, Absalom took all of David's wives up on the housetop and slept with all of them in the sight of all Israel. Why did that happen? Because of what he did. There's some sins people pay for for the rest of their lives. Let's read on. Verse 12, for thou didst secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Verse 13, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not what? God's not going to kill you. Let's read verse 14. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. This was a great sin because of the effect that it had upon the people. What was the effect? Thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. That's why the scripture says there are greater sins and there are lesser sins. Jesus said to Pilate, he that hath delivered me unto thee hath committed the greater sin. And the, the, the degree of sin is based upon the amount of people that it affects. Um, when I was teaching young ministers class, uh, I made the point. Jesus said on one occasion, Who shall, whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, talking about his children, it'd be better for him that a millstone be tied around his neck and he be cast into the sea. Now that's some pretty strong statement, isn't it? Now, when he says offend, he's not talking about hurting somebody's feelings. When he mentions the word offend, he's talking about causing people to stumble and fall, being the reason why people stray from God, being the reason why people are lost. He said, it will be better for you to do that, cause people to be lost. It would be better if you 
just killed yourself. Now, or have a mill, tie a millstone around you, and you drown in the sea. And so, why would Jesus say that? Why would he say it's better if you tied a stone around you and threw yourself in the sea? Well, because if that happens, you only destroyed one person. But if you cause people to sin through your bad conduct, let's take a pastor in leadership position, you can destroy a multitude of people. Can you say amen? And that's what he was saying to David. And David, after he got this word, he fasted for three days for God to have mercy. And God would not have mercy. He took the child. And then he sat down and wrote this psalm. Psalm 51, verse 1 through 19. And this will be our last scripture. And this is the type of heart we should always have before God. Psalms 51. And we'll read the entire psalm. This is our last scripture. We've got five minutes left. Psalm 51. Let's read. He wrote this after the child died. Let's read verse one. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy Loving kindness, let's read. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I don't ever want to do anything like that again, Lord. Do this for me. Verse 3. Why? For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is what? I will never forget what I've done. It will be ever before me. And that's how it is with us. That as we sin, God may forgive us, but it's always in our mind. It's ever before us. It won't be wiped away until we get our glorified bodies. But David is saying it is ever before me. I'm reminded of what I did. Always. Let's read verse four. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Well, I disagree with you, David. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned not only against God, you sinned against Bathsheba because she had to come. You were the king and she had no choice but to come because you were in the position of authority. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against all Israel. Cause the, the name of the Lord to blaspheme. But he's personalizing it with God only. But I want you to know he not only sinned against God, he sinned against his own family. Let's read. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Let's read. And done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when what? You are justified. You are right. You are clear to bring on me any punishment that you decide to bring. Big contrast from Cain, huh? When Cain slew his brother and the Lord pronounced a judgment on him, he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. See, Cain wasn't repentant, but David was. Because he says, whatever you allow to come before me, Lord, you are justified. You have the right to do it because of what I did to you. Let's read on. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Verse 6. 
Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be what? Clean. Wash me, and I shall be what? Whiter than snow. That was the song they were singing when I was filled with the Holy Ghost. They were singing that song. Wash me, I want to be whiter than snow, and I was saying that in my mind when God filled me with the Holy Ghost. I'll never forget that. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So David now is exhibiting penitence, as we said, sad, humble realization and regret for his own misdeeds. Repentance, he has a desire to change. Contrition stresses the sorrowful regret of what he did. Compunction implies a painful sting of conscience for the contemplated wrongdoing that he did. He has all these things. Remorse, prolonged and insistent self-reproach and mental anguish for the wrong that he did. Sorrow, deep distress, distress, sadness, guilt, regret, pain. He's in pain now. All these things he is demonstrating in this song. Verse Number eight, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken, what? May rejoice, verse nine. Hide thy face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a what? What is he saying? Bring, when he says the word create, create in me a clean heart. In other words, bring into existence in me a clean heart. Let's read, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, cast not, me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of what? Thy salvation. And uphold me with the free spirit. Now I want you to know when he says, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now in his mind, he is thinking about Saul, how God rejected Saul and how God took the spirit from Saul and cut him off and he died in the field without God in his sins. He is saying, don't do me like you did Saul. Have mercy upon me, Lord. Spare me. Don't do that to me because what he is saying here, God cast Saul out of his presence and took his spirit away from him. David's prayer and cry, don't do that to me. What you did to Saul, don't do that to me. I'm sorry for what I did. Verse 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Hold me with thy free spirit. Verse 13, then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be what? Verted unto thee, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy what? Righteousness. Verse 15, O Lord, open thou my lips. My mouth shall show forth thy praise. He can't praise him like he used to because of all of this sin, but he wants God to cleanse him so that he can praise him. You got to get out of sin to really give him a praise. That counts. Is that right? Let's read the next verse. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, that would not what? You're not interested in my service. 
You're not interested in my worship because offerings and sacrifices was worship. You're not interested in my worship, Lord. You don't want that kind of sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice you want is a broken heart. You want repentance. You want repentance. Not for me to get up and sing, not for me to get up and preach, not for me to get up and play a musical instrument, not for me to get up and lead services. You want me to repent. That means more than anything that I can do because all this other stuff you're not accepting. You want to change inside the heart. Then those things will mean something to you. Let's read the next verse. Do good in thy good pleasure. On design, build thou the walls. What? He's now praying for the kingdom that he is over. Verse 19. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of what? Righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks. What? But get me straight first so that the kingdom can be straight. This is repentance that we should always have. And if we have this type of spirit, this type of attitude, there's no way we would ever miss the rapture. But if we are stuck in our ways, stuck in ourselves, stuck in our feelings, then God can't do anything with us. But if we do it the Bible way, we'll go where the Bible says we're going. Can we say amen? God bless you tonight. Thank you for your patience. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Well, he says, are Pentecostals and the apostolic the same? Do they practice the same faith or doctrines? Well, Pentecostals has to do with the speaking in tongue experience. Apostolic is Jesus only doctrine. So all apostolics are Pentecostals, but not all Pentecostals are apostolics. Now, back in the early teens of the last century, um, when the Holy Ghost was first poured out and began to be poured out all over the country, they were called Pentecostals. Then when the baptism in Jesus' name came back into fruition and the oneness of the Godhead, because all of the Pentecostals were Trinitarians, but as God opened the eyes of the brethren, they saw that there was only one God, no Trinity, and that baptism is in Jesus' name, those that refused to accept it pulled out and formed their own organizations. Among the blacks was the Church of God in Christ under Bishop Charles Mason. Under the whites was the Assemblies of God. The Pentecostal Assemblies of the World was reorganized as a oneness organization. Uh, but because the Trinitarians were calling themselves Pentecostals, and we were Pentecostals, we took up the term apostolic because the term, it was the apostolic or the teachings of the apostles or the baptism in Jesus' name and the oneness of the Godhead that we had come into Revelation 2. So understand that all apostolics are Pentecostals. We have the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues experience, but not all Pentecostals Apostolics, because you have some Pentecostals that believe in the Trinity, but then you have the Pentecostal apostolics. We are Jesus only. So there's a difference. That's why we, call, we are called apostolics. We are Pentecostal in experience. We are apostolic in doctrine. Apostolic in doctrine means we only believe in the baptism in Jesus' name. 
and the oneness of the Godhead in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Father in creation, Son in redemption, and the Holy Ghost today in the church. All right? If the whole apostolic church is in sin, I never said that. What is that? Well, if the whole apostolic church is in sin and you are innocent, does that mean you won't make the rapture? Well, what you have to realize is that the whole church is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. That's the church as a whole. That doesn't mean every saint is in that condition. That is the condition of the entire church. So this question is, if the whole apostolic church is in sin and you are innocent, does that mean you won't make the rapture? No, you, the Bible says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Some of the things that are going on in the apostolic church are contrary to the scriptures. You don't do contrary to the scriptures. You follow the scriptures. Can we say amen? And you will be saved in spite of those apostolics that are in the church that are not living right. See, we have apostolic preachers that are teaching and preaching that baptism in Jesus' name is not important. We have apostolics teaching that you don't have to have the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, that all you have to do is believe and you automatically have the Holy Ghost. You have some apostolics that are teaching that. Now, what's going to happen to them? I don't know what's going to happen to them, but I'm not teaching that. I'm teaching the truth. And so I'm going to be saved. So just as you may have some apostolics that are not living right, you have some that are. And those that are living right are going to be saved and those that are living wrong are not. Does that answer the question? I hope it does. All right. What does it mean to have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost? How is this the kingdom of God as referenced in Romans 14, 17? I, I am, I'm especially wondering about the word in. Well, once you have come into the kingdom of God, which is the church, you have come into the kingdom of God because of his righteousness, his peace, and the joy that you received when you were filled with the Holy Ghost. And that joy of the Lord is your understanding and revelation of the word of God. Because you can only get righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost if you are in the kingdom of God, because it's not in the kingdom of the world or in the kingdom of the devil. So you get that once you receive salvation. Jesus said, uh, the joy that I give, not as the world gives. So when you get saved, you get that joy that Jesus gives. He said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world give. So when you come into Christ, you get the peace of God in your soul. What is that peace of God? I'm saved, got my sins washed away. I'm living for him. Now there's peace between me and God because I've given my life to him and I'm living for him. You can only get that in the kingdom of God or you can only get that in the church or you can only get that if you get saved. That's what that means. So once I get saved, I've received the righteousness of God. I've received peace from God. I received joy from God. And all that is found in the Holy Ghost because I've received the Holy Ghost and had my sins washed away. All right.
God bless you. Thank you for your patience tonight. Gonna, amen. We're going to prepare to take our offering and be dismissed.